Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who definitely does not surround myself with yes men. I prefer yes women. Thanks. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, I am really pleased to have Jody Cantor and Megan Tui, the reporters from the New York Times, who in 2017 broke the story that Harvey Weinstein had paid off several people accusing him of sexual harassment. This story led to Weinstein's downfall and kickstarted the Me Too movement. But Jody and Megan have written a new new book about the machine that kept Weinstein's behavior under wraps. It has repercussions all over the place, including in tech and business. The book is called She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement. Jody and Megan, welcome to Rico Decode. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. You all, uh, you know, there's there's several different reporters have been doing astonishing work over the past uh, years or two years, and you two are at the top of the list, I have to say. Um, and it's lovely um, that this book has come out because it's a really interesting take. Why don't you guys sort of introduce yourselves? I, you both have really interesting backstories. Megan, why don't we start with you? Because you had been covering a whole bunch of in this arena, and including President Trump. So why don't you give a quick background so people get an idea? Sure. I've been covering sex crimes and sexual harassment and other types of sexual misconduct issues basically for about 10 years. Um, I spent a chapter of my career at the Chicago Tribune where I did a lot of coverage. I was one of the first reporters to uncover the, these untested rape kits that mm-hmm. were gathering dust in police storage units and also worked on a project in which about an underground network where people were giving away adopted children to strangers that they met on the internet mm-hmm. and how some of those kids were ending up in the hands of sexual predators. And then I joined the New York Times in 2016. Actually, it was a bit of a leap for me. I mm-hmm. went on to so I was brought on to be one of the investigative reporters on the presidential campaign team. Sure. And so that was when I actually, one of my first assignments was to look into Donald Trump's treatment of women. And so Michael Barbaro and I actually broke some of the first stories looking at the sexual, the allegations of sexual misconduct against him. Of which him, there were many, right. Of which there were many, right? There were, we had done some stories before the Access Hollywood tape came out. Mm-hmm. And then we did some of the stories after the Access Hollywood tape. So I worked with some of those women who had come forward mm-hmm. uh, during 2016, during the race. And that that was, you know, that was obviously a very different experience from the Weinstein it, reporting. It, but it was similar in that the attacks and the pressure and getting people to talk about this issue, which I think was the most difficult. That was the most interesting part of the book to me is like as a reporter, getting people to trust you and how you approach them was really interesting. 
Yeah, and that's right. That's one of the things. That was actually one of the first real meaningful conversations that Jody and I had. Mm-hmm. So I continued to cover Trump after he was elected, uh, did some of the initial reporting on Trump Russia, mm-hmm. and then had a baby. And mm-hmm. so I was off on maternity leave for four months. And I was actually feeling pretty battered during that time because uh, to have you know to have worked with these women who who went on the record against Trump and then to help cover his election uh, and to undergo the attacks and to have not just witness the attacks that Trump and his supporters made on those women, but also on me and the mm-hmm. New York Times. Right, there were some threats. Yeah, I mean, I just was feeling a little battered and a little... A lot of them were online threats, too. There were online threats, yeah, exactly. There were, like, my, you know, my sort of Twitter, I was I was totally new to Twitter at the mm-hmm. time, and so my introduction to Twitter was just the trolls who were sort of threatening to, like, kill and rape me and mm-hmm. as a response for, cover, you know, examining Trump's Welcome treatment of him. Yeah, it was, it was a yeah, that is little scary, uh, scary funny introduction. Funny is just the side... The side game. Jordan. Yeah, exactly. So, but there was, but what was, something remarkable happened while I was on maternity leave, which was that our colleagues, uh, Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt broke the Bill O'Reilly story. Right. And so in the midst, there was sort of one day where I was home amidst all of like, you know, diapers and bottles. And I looked up at the TV to the announcement that Bill O'Reilly was basically being fired from right. Fox. And I was like, Roger Ailes. Yeah. Right, and so. I was like, holy cow, maybe these stories can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, not, it was soon after that, that Jody called me and said, you know, I'm starting this investigation into Harvey Weinstein, and I'm actually in the process of trying to make these initial calls and get people to talk to me and open up, but I think that people are going to be really scared. And I'm wondering if you have, I know you've done this type of coverage in the past in Chicago and with the Trump women, do you have any advice sure. on what I so might be able to say? That's, that's how, how you we met. met. So mm-hmm. Jody, you had, why had you gotten on this? Because Harvey Weinstein was the sub, people always talked about him this way, like he was a pig, essentially. But nobody had followed a, these things to the thing. What got you onto it? And talk a little bit about your background. So it's interesting because our backgrounds ended up being complementary in a way that I don't even think I understood at the time I first started talking to you, Megan. Um, Megan had done all the sex c- crimes reporting, and I had done a lot of stuff on the workplace and actually often in the field of technology, you know, Mm -hmm. women, business, the workplace technology. I did a big story about the way women were treated at Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. I wrote about low-income workers at Starbucks uh, and really almost all hourly workers at restaurants and stores whose lives were being controlled by these crazy scheduling algorithms Mm -hmm. that threw their everyday lives into chaos. And I did this big investigation of Amazon with another colleague. And those stories were kind of gender stories, but not gender stories. And what I mean is, I think what they taught me is that gender could be a kind of investigative tool Mm -hmm. that because women are often still the outsiders and have less power at these organizations, if you learn the women's experiences, you're both, of course, like you're literally writing about gender and their experiences, but it's also a way of prying the place open. Like to me, the way Amazon treats its women, Mm -hmm. it tells you so much about just the way power Mm -hmm. works at that company generally. Explain that that, that piece. That that caused quite a Star. It did cause quite a star. And it was funny because NDAs were sort of a theme sure. to that piece. Which was always and, this and, book, too. Yeah, exactly. We persuaded a lot of people on that story to break their NDAs to talk to us. The issues with the pretty brutal culture that was there. Yeah, it was a story meant to say Amazon has this incredible strength and power. But it can also be such a punishing place to work, even by the standards of the tech industry. And it almost seems designed 
to work that way. And so we were, it was an unusual workplace story because usually labor stories are about lower paid workers. And, and he had been about Amazon, about the warehouses. Exactly. And, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and instead we were looking at the experiences of white collar employees in Amazon's headquarters. And what they found was this really brutal culture that kind of had no give, that almost seemed like a kind of giant algorithm that was designed to get the most and the best out of them as human beings. A lot of them burned out. And one particularly telling detail is that a lot of people who had suffered some sort of personal tragedy or setback, whether it was cancer or a miscarriage, told us that the company did not give them time to recover and that they felt, you know, they were given a bad evaluation or what, whatever Which was afterwards. different than the tech culture had put out. Now, Google was was a place, for example, that did a lot of uh, maternity leave, early stuff, a lot more than other companies. Well, so one of the—that story had a lot of impact. Yeah. And, one, and one of the pieces of impact is that Amazon introduced paid paternity leave for the first time. So I had had these experiences of reporting on pretty intimidating targets mm-hmm. and— feeling that if we did it right, we could really have impact. But so that is how I got drafted into what was really a team that was forming in the spring of 2017 at the Times because this O'Reilly story had Mm -hmm. just landed. And, you know, it was so, I I know it seems like it was many, many, many sexual harassment stories Mm -hmm. ago, but if you go back to that Bill O'Reilly story, critical, it was astonishing that he was fired. He was so powerful. Mm -hmm. And remember that he wasn't fired because of these allegations. Fox knew about the allegations. They were paying them off, right? It was $13 million? At the time, Eventually, Emily and Mike established that I think it was a total of $45 million Mm -hmm. that Fox and O'Reilly had paid to these women. But anyway, it wasn't that women had made allegations. That wasn't why he was fired. It was the public airing of those allegations in the New York Times that caused advertisers to flee. He was fired. So at the Times, the editors asked what now sounds like a very quaint question. They said, are there other powerful men in American life who have abused women and covered it up? And we were looking at a variety of industries. Katie Benner was looking at Silicon Valley. Susan Shearer and Katrin Einhorn were looking at blue-collar and low-income women. We were making inquiries into academia. We were talking about restaurant workers. And also our editor, Rebecca Corbett, I remember as early as May 2017, there were two words she said she wanted me to focus on, enablement and complicity. Mm-hmm. Because we were be- what happens is when you look at this stuff across industries, you begin to see that there's a system. And we were beginning to question that system. Mm-hmm. So I called somebody I knew, uh, Shauna Thomas, a feminist activist from an organization called Ultraviolet. And I said, what stories haven't been told? What's been covered up? And she said, Harvey Weinstein. And yeah. she said, Rose McGowan is working on this book. And I mean, I had, you know, I quickly figured out that there had been rumors for all these years that other journalists had tried. But I think the fact that nobody else had gotten it was actually, I mean, that was a dare. Yeah. That was. It really was amazing. David Carr sort of alluded to it and tried. I remember talking to him about it, yeah. you know, off the record when he was the late David Carr, but he couldn't get anybody to talk on the record. He couldn't convince women to talk. Um, I know Canaletta tried. Like, some people overlooked it completely, for sure. There was a gravitational pull to mm-hmm. the fact that other people had tried. But we really didn't know anything. We We were starting from a standing start. We didn't know if the rumors were true. Right. Um, we, 
initial, the first page of the book is about how Rose McGowan initially refused yes. to talk yes. to me. And th- yes. that first so, page of the book is about me trying to convince, convince her. her. And then you guys talked about how to write the email to her to get her to respond. But she did, I think the point you made is she did respond. Like she, and she responded with anger at the New York Times being sexist that she had, had been experiences at the Times that were not to her liking, correct? That's what she said. And, but I felt that the email gave me an opening because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as you know, Kara, a lot of people just don't even write or text back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when somebody does... You oh, know, it's the opening. You have it, Yeah, yeah you, 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 you know that they're thinking about the story, that right. they're curious. And also, truly, what is... I mean, on the one hand, you know, this is a story of sexual assault, so it's a painful topic. But she had already tweeted it. Right. And so not... Without, without, without naming. Without mm-hmm. naming Weinstein. And so at that point, I felt... She was ready job. to talk about Well, I, I, you know, Golan was just one off-the-record phone call to begin to hear some details and establish some trust. So, so Megan, you had come back from a journal. You had been under a lot of siege with the president, President Trump stuff, and it, it didn't really do anything. Like, he was elected president. Well, that's right. The first day back from maternity leave, Rebecca, our editor, sat us, sat me down and was like, okay, what you know, what do you want to cover? Basically, here are your options. You can go back to covering Trump mm-hmm. or you can join Jody on this Weinstein investigation. And, you know, I actually took a day to think about it because um, I had been pretty battered by the <laughs> Trump reporting in 2016. And I consulted with some of my colleagues, um, especially some of my male, male colleagues who uh, were like, listen, you got to come back and cover Trump. I mean, he's the story of a lifetime, mm-hmm. sort of much more important than some sleazy producer uh, who may have been Lady preying talk. on. <laughs> Lady. Um, but listen, in, in all fairness, obviously, the, 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 the reporters at the Times who have been doing Trump coverage have done an amazing job. But for me, sitting back and having like four months off on maternity leave to just observe, to be a reader of the news as opposed to a reporter, I had watched a lot of the coverage of him kind of pile up without much impact. And mm-hmm. so as investigative journalists, you're always trying to figure out you know, what is going to, you know, what's what, not just what the interesting story is, but what's a story that can help bring about change. And mm-hmm. so Jody and I actually, so I consulted with some of the Trump reporters and then I consulted with Jody and I actually aired some of my concerns to her. I said, listen, she was, she had just started to talk to Ashley Judd. And in addition to, to Rose McGowan, she was starting to talk to Ashley Judd mm-hmm. and, and Gwyneth Paltrow. And when she described at least Ashley and Gwyneth's stories of these kind of meeting in hotels and right, requests for massage. I will confess that my initial response was, as somebody who hasn't played close attention to the entertainment industry, you know, I was, I wasn't and had covered sort of more hardcore traditional sex crimes in Mm -hmm. the past with victims, uh, you know, some victims of rape. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just a little skeptical, too, of of the Weinstein investigation in the beginning. Another thing that we try to do with investigative reporting is to give voice to the voiceless, to search Mm -hmm. out the victims who either are, like, not getting kind of, you know, protection from... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The systems that be or don't have uh, hotel kind of, workers, like, yeah, there had right. Been that so, big so, case where- yeah. So it was hard for me. I'll be honest. It was sort of hard for me to conceive. This of, is just 
grabbing, Hollywood producer grabbing. Right? Yeah, and, and just to conceive of famous actresses as victims, mm-hmm. um, right. you know, that warranted kind of the the muscle of the New York Times to help, you know, uncover their stories and give them voice. And so Jody was actually, no, and, and so we had an interesting conversation in which Jody was basically like, listen, I've been, you know, first of all, this shows that if this is happening to actresses, this type of sexual harassment is happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that this is a, that, you know, that this really gets at the this core issue of work. Like mm-hmm. these women were showing up to these hotel rooms, not for like late night cocktails. They were showing up because their agents had sent them. And this was, yeah, they, they wanted a role. This was about work. And this is this is fundamentally what the, sto- the issue of sexual harassment means for everybody. Right. There was something else I think felt, uh, look, I had no idea that this story was going to have the impact it did. Mm -hmm. But I thought there was something special about actresses because I thought these women write our scripts Mm -hmm. for what femininity is supposed to be. Or they they, play the scripts. It's often written by men. Right. They act act out, you know, you're 12 or 13 years old and you go to the movies and you see— Gwyneth Paltrow. You see them acting out what a mm-hmm. woman is supposed to look like, how she's supposed to behave, how she's supposed to flirt or fall in love or relate to other people. You see these romance scenes play out. And if all of that cultural history from Shakespeare in Love to Pulp Fiction is was really concealing something that was so much darker, I just thought we didn't have a huge number of well-founded allegations at that point. We didn't know the severity. But I just thought, wait a second, this story could throw a substantial amount of our shared pop culture history into question. Right, right. Just like with Woody Allen, with a lot of with a lot of things, which people are questioning, like people exactly. start to question. So when you were um, beginning this, one of the interesting things I found in the book is the way you got to it was not necessarily through the, the victim stories, which you had. And that was critical to get Ashley Judd on the record, Rose McGowan on the record, Gwyneth Paltrow eventually on the record. Um, but through uh, documents, settlements, that, that was an interesting way to go in. Because when you covered... Sex crimes. It was the vic- it's a victim focused coverage area. Yeah. Well, we we quickly realized that you know there had been this culture of secrecy in Hollywood in which these women, even the most famous among them, w- were really terrified to speak out because mm-hmm. Weinstein had been such a powerful and threatening. A figure. He's a threatener. And, and threatening and yeah. threatening. He threatened I mean, he me could... once at a tech conference. It was strange. Did he, he? Was eating food and he spit at me and I said, "What the fuck, dude?" <laughs> And he was like, oh, was with you. I said, I heard you're an asshole, but I had no idea you spit at women, but okay, whatever. And it was a weird encounter. And that, that, of course, is nothing, but it was odd and strange. And he was vaguely threatening, like, how dare you speak to me like this? It was strange. It's the only time I ever met this guy. And I thought, what a jackass. Yeah. And yeah. he was, and listen, if you were, you know, if you were outside of his industry, I think you could have the courage to say, you know, well, you're an Google asshole. zeitgeist. So yeah. I'm like, get out of my, right. get yeah, off my get, lawn. Get off my, right. You jackass. So. But for people in his world, yeah. in his orbit, he they were could, terrified yeah, he could make or break careers, mm-hmm. you know, and the, with the snap of his fingers. Mm-hmm. And so. And he was, calling around, that was one of the tactics. That's right. Yeah, exactly. They're difficult. Rose McGowan, difficult. Right. Kind of thing. Right. And we learned, I mean, obviously we've lear- learned so much more that it was such a more complicated and, and, and sort of thorough machinery that he'd put in place to try to silence his accusers and beat back scrutiny. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, there. you know, if anybody is sort of skeptical of conspiracy theories like this, you know, don't read the Weinstein story because there's so many, it just gets deeper and deeper. Right. The, we'll the, talk the, about right, some yeah. of the revelations you found. But, but it, you went through it through 
documents. So we realized. So we realized that there was that 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 another thing that we were another challenge that we were facing was the fact that, you know, if we were in the end were able to document that at least um, uh, that he had paid out secret settlements to silence at least eight eight women um, right. over the years. And so we were we were sort of facing facing two big challenges: not just that women were scared to go on the record, but that in some cases they were legally prohibited from talking mm-hmm. to us. There mm-hmm. was through these NDAs. Through the, yeah, through these NDAs. So you know, sometimes, and this doesn't just apply to you know victims, mm-hmm. Harvey's victims. These were victims victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault across the country. Will often sort of step forward and turn mm-hmm. to an attorney for help, saying, "This just happened to me. I want to do something about it. I want to hold this guy accountable." Gloria Allred, these. Gloria, you, you gave that example. Gloria Allred would be among the the attorneys who will often steer those people into settlements, saying out of secret out of court settlements, where they say, "Listen, this is your best option is to basically accept money in exchange for silence." Mm-hmm. And Which happens in the tech industry a lot, it ha- several different times. It, ha- it happens across all industries, mm-hmm. and it's not just. Listen, I think there's been a general awareness of these secret settlements, but if you look at the specific uh, clauses, restrictive clauses that these people have to agree to uh, in order to get compensation for what's happened to them. They are jaw-dropping. I mean, you have to, they can't tell their husbands. They can't tell their, um, if they want to get mental health treatment for what's happened, that mental health treatment provider has to sign an NDA. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And mm-hmm. the lawyers, the role of some of these lawyers like Gloria who are Allred, supposed to be on your side. Who have been, you know, who are in public present as some of the most vocal opponents of sexual harassment and sexual assault have participated in these settlements that have helped kind of Conceal. It's not unsimilar to what happened around uh, priests in Catholic pre- in Boston when the, the 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 victims were silenced. Right, but this is totally legal. Like, right. here's the way I would put it: our default way of dealing with sexual harassment and mm-hmm. sometimes assault in this country is to pay to silence the women. Right. That like e- even if even if you look at the EOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity mm-hmm. Commission, which is the government agency in charge of looking over this stuff, they keep their settlement secret. Right. You or I, if we're thinking of taking a new job and we want to say, oh, you know, I, I wonder I'm, if this place- I might I might want to work at Facebook, you know, what's their record on this kind of thing? The EOC has that information and we cannot look it up mm-hmm. because a long time ago, it, it was decided that secrecy was the best way to deal with a lot of this stuff. And so what we've come to, and we should say for fairness, that for an individual woman who's been through something terrible, it can make total sense to take a settlement. You get to keep mm-hmm. your privacy. You get financial recompense. Um, you can avoid being branded, you know, a tattletale, a flirt, a, a mm-hmm. traitor or whatever. You can move on with your life. Some of these payments, are, as we've seen, are enormous. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, Emily and Mike wrote about a woman who got $32 million mm-hmm. uh, from Fox and O'Reilly. So it can make sense on an individual basis. But more and more with our reporting, we're just coming to the question of like, well, does this country even have the right system for right. dealing with 100%, these issues? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. And so, and I was just going to say that, in, and you know, back to your question, that in the course of our reporting, we realized that, and we were taking our cues from the work that the kind of groundbreaking work that Emily and Mike had done in the case of O'Reilly, is that we realized that was kind of a case study in how 
yes, these settlements have been used to silence victims and conceal bad behavior. But and if witnesses. you're able and witnesses, but if you can basically piece together that financial trail, if you can come, if you can right. basically get your hands, which is on how records, you guys got in, and we're gonna. It's really interesting because you know I was involved in the sexual harassment suit when I was in my twenties with John McLaughlin. Uh, oh my guys, god, I worked on the McLaughlin yeah, show. I know, I, like I, when I was too. nineteen, and the same thing, abusive, sexually abusive too to people, oh and goodness. I witnessed a sexual. And what was interesting is they. I had. I guess when I got employed, I signed an NDA, but then I talked to everybody. I was like, sue me. I was remember, you know what I mean? But he sexually harassed people in front of me. And so I saw the, I was in the in the office in the evening when he was sexually harassed and I saw it and it was, they were trying to shut me down. It was fascinating. And did him. he face any real consequences? He had a, he paid someone off for the, he did it later. We all quit, two, the two of us quit. And then he uh, did it again and paid off that person. And then someone else took him to court and he paid them off. And so I then said, I'm talking to all, anyone I can. It was, you know what I mean? Like, and so I did. And so I did talk publicly with, the, with my name attached to the Washington Post. Um, but did his... And they said, oh, you have an NDM, I'm like, sue me. Did his so. work and reputation continue pretty much unimpeached? Uh, for a lot, yeah, until he died, yeah. Yeah, he did. It was amazing. He was such a pig. It was like a, it was I was an intern on that yeah. show. It was my first, like, Crazy. basically an internship in Same news. Thing. It was pretty. I'm surprised you escaped on yeah. Unsullied. Well, it just goes back to sort of what we accepted. Right. You know, what right. was sort of considered acceptable. Just yeah. kind of what you had to go through being a 20 year old girl on your. What was interesting is when, later I've told the story before, but when he. Um, uh, when I did talk on the record and I wanted my name on the record in the post. I didn't want a source said. I said, my name is Kara Swisher. Put it down. And he came up to me. I was at the Washington Post by this time and it was several years later and he came up to me and he said, Kara Swisher. And I'm like, oh, fuck you. you. You know, go away. Like, you awful person. I know you won, but you didn't. Like, at least I got to take it take it to you a little bit. And he goes, I just want to say in this town, people stab you in the back and you stab me in the front. And I said, anytime, you son of a bitch. And it was like, it was like this moment, but he never suffered. It was just one of my things. But the, I remember this, the threat of the NDA. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I don't have anything. Sue me. Like, what are you going to do? Which was interesting. And then I worked on the, on the Nita Hill stuff uh, for, at the Washington. I was there in the middle of that mess, which was interesting. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We're here with Jody Cantor and Megan Tui from the New York Times. We're going to take a quick break and talk, uh, and then come back and talk about their new book, She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement from their reporting, their Pulitzer Prize winning reporting in the New York Times. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. 
And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We're here with Jody Cantor and Megan Tui from The New York Times. They have written a book about their reporting there called She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story that Helped Ignite a Movement. Obviously, Harvey Weinstein was the topic, but this covers a lot of things. But before we get to that, one of the things that was interesting was you're talking about how you got through the legal settlements and how you, you sort of un, unraveled those. Because once you have access to those, you know, smoke fire kind of thing. Like, why did you pay this? why did you decide to do that? Because the people wouldn't talk? Because that was one of the parts of the book I found interesting, getting these women to, to go on the record. Well, okay, so step one was to try to talk to the Hollywood actresses. Mm-hmm. And we immediately started hearing some alarming stories, mm-hmm. but they were totally off the record. Right. And no, understandably, nobody wanted to go on the record. So uh, basically, our editor, Rebecca Corbett, her attitude was, this story is going to need to be founded on some real evidence. Mm-hmm. And we... Um, we Which knew, would be these settlements. Yeah, well, we knew about Rose McGowan's settlement, and the question was, first of all, were there others? But also, how do you find these women? I mean, these women mm-hmm. essentially have been wiped off the map. They've been uh, erased from mm-hmm. movie history. And Rose is an exception, but most of the women with settlements were not famous actresses. Yeah, they, they were assistants. They were, they were a woman who worked for Miramax in, you know, 1990, mm-hmm. whatever. And you know, so how are we going to figure out who this person was? So a lot of our work that summer was talking to former Miramax because they all know. And Weinstein, well, yes and no. It, right. took, it took a lot of phone calls. Some people didn't pick up the phone. But lo and behold, we started hearing these stories of, you know, the, a woman mysteriously disappeared from the office in 1990. Mm-hmm. She was very young. You know, we started to hear in 1998, I think something terrible happened at the Venice Film Festival involving two women, but I, I don't know exactly I heard what it was. It. Exactly. Yeah. So I saw them the next day. They seemed very upset. So it was the process of going back and tracing that trail, but it was difficult because uh, a woman with a settlement, by definition, can't talk. Rowena Chu, yes, this uh, was a character, who, by someone. the way, lives in Silicon Valley, she has come forward. Uh, in our book with a very powerful story, she had not even told her husband. So uh, we tracked her down in the summer of 2017, and I I went to their home uh, to try to speak to her. Her husband was there instead, and it was a very awkward conversation because he hadn't known anything. She had never told him. So you showed up at their house? I showed up at their house, and we stood in the drive. He was kind enough to speak to me off the record for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh but I realized at a point in the conversation, he doesn't he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And so then I had to decide standing there, uh, how much should I tell him on the one hand? You know, I've showed up in this guy's driveway. I'm not going to lie. I'm not right. going to misrepresent a reason why I'm there. If I want these people to be transparent with me, I have to be transparent myself. But then again, it's not my place mm-hmm. to tell him what may or may not have happened with his wife. But I think... Ultimately, in a way, it wasn't about me or him or her. It was about this settlement system in which women have to sign papers, often saying they will literally never tell anybody about what happened. Right. And so so how did you split up? So you were visiting a lot. Did you both deal with these subjects 
or more with one the other. Yeah, we we both we both dealt with these subjects. Um, we both did door knocks. We both went on the hunt for records. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of would divide up. Uh, we we had a shared Google Doc where we would uh, kept a list of names and potential sources, and we divide them up and uh, start digging around into sort of different periods of time within the company. And so there was like for example the case of Ambra Badalana Gutierrez. She was one of the women who had. She was, as far as we know it, maybe the only woman who ever reported Weinstein to, to police. police here right. in New York in 2015, prompting a, a police investigation in right. which she and wore tapes. a wire yeah. and, and tapes, and yet the prosecutor's office did not bring charges at that time. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the areas where I just was so curious to know what had happened there, and ultimately we were able to figure out in the course of reporting uh, that, yes, the after the prosecutors had declined to press charges, that Harvey had turned around and paid her a substantial settlement in mm-hmm. order to uh, Get her obtain, not to retake, this, tell the story. Right, exactly, to get a copy of that of that police recording, and so um, you know that was that was an area in which uh, you know I had I had decided to kind of dig around, and so we we, we sort of divided divided uh, the reporting up um, by and so we we I mean we, you end up dividing up because these source relationships are deep, and so yeah. it's often better if it's a one to one relationship. But but we were involved in each of them. Like for example, when I. When I started talking to Erwin Ryder, who's... Erwin Ryder's the accountant who'd he, worked there for decades. He, so I called Erwin Ryder, who was Harvey Weinstein's accountant for his companies for 30 yeah. years. And I, I had thought was a long shot to talk to us. But he started engaging. He wouldn't you just ha- called him? I call, yeah, once. I, I had a cell number for a while. But with a source like that, I often want like some insight or intel before I call them. And somebody had said to me, to my surprise, Erwin Ryder hates Harvey Weinstein. So I call him. And he won't talk on the phone, but he gives me his email address. Mm-hmm. But at that point, so he and I started having this email correspondence, but really Megan was the third person in the room because she and I were composing every email together very carefully. And even in, like sometimes one of us would be meeting a source, but we would obviously strategize sure. beforehand. Right. But you established this rapport with him and and he kind of wanted to do this. Like you, he, Well, he, as you know from journalism, Kara, mm-hmm. the question of who ends up helping you is often so surprising and it sort of defies yeah, your, on the, your, on your the, predictions yeah, no, every on the time Uber on the story. Thing, I actually, I was like, how can you allow this to happen? I sort of appealed to someone who had a daughter and I said, this is embarrassing what you're doing. And then they felt terrible, especially we had, they were dealing with uh, rape uh, victims files. They had them in their possession and were trying to say these women on Uber hadn't been raped. Travis was, all of them were. And so I said, how could you do that? And I knew this person and they were like, Oh, I, I shouldn't. Like it was interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I mean that rapport. So true. So, so um, it turns out that we had no way of knowing this, but I was talking to somebody who was who had been frustrated for years right. when he first worked for Weinstein for like the first mm-hmm. two decades. He had had some glimpses of wrongdoing and he didn't act. Right. But in 2014, he had grown more alarmed. He was hearing more chatter inside the company. But just to show you how all these stories affect one another. It was also Cosby. He saw the Cosby headlines in Mm -hmm. the fall of 2014, and he had this recognition of, what if we have a Cosby situation at Mm -hmm. this company? And initially, he admits that his concern was not particularly for the women. It was for the company. He was like, this could destroy this company. So he's... 
We write in the book in great detail about two years in the history of the Weinstein Company because we wanted to delve into this question of, you know, how can a company end up becoming so complicit Mm -hmm. In abuse. Oh, easily. And it turns out that Irwin had tried uh, to intervene. He'd totally failed. And so by the time I reached him, he was deeply concerned about the problem and deeply frustrated by his inability to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Because people have pieces of things. That's one of the things that you guys brought, I think, really well, is that individual people at these companies or individual women had pieces and never had been together. I think that was really effective at the end of the book, which we'll talk about in a little bit, where you brought them all together. But everyone had little... But the separation of people is always the most effective way to keep everybody quiet because you don't know all of it. Right. There's the separation of the victims, mm-hmm. right? Either they are silenced through these settlements or— They think it's only them. Or they think it's only them. They feel shame or embarrassment over what's happened, and they don't necessarily want to talk about it even if they legally are able to. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we also realized that there were people in the company, not mm-hmm. necessarily victims themselves, but witnesses, people who had yeah. gotten glimpses of the problem over the, over time and so that was really, especially stepping away from the first Weinstein story, it was like one of the most pressing questions for us is like, is who knew what, when, and what did they try to do about it? And what we were able to see is that there were, it wasn't just Erwin Ryder, like Harvey Weinstein's own brother, Bob, yeah. had gotten glimpses of this problem. And had written him a letter, which you... And had written him a letter, right. Like for so long, Bob would refuse to talk to us. Mm-hmm. You know, I would call him and he'd basically kind of bark into the phone and then hang up on me. Mm-hmm. But there was a moment last year where he finally uh, said, okay, listen, I'll meet you for lunch at this diner here in Manhattan. And he slowly started to open up and talk about what he had seen, what he knew, at least, you know, his account of that. Right. You know, he acknowledged that he had been aware of allegations of sexual of sexual misconduct against his brother going back to the 90s. In a couple cases, he had provided the money that was used to silence mm-hmm. the women. But he, like so many other people, also said that he believed Harvey when he told him that this was actually just attempts at shakedowns and this was all extramarital philandering and nothing more. And that he was also informed by his own that Bob actually had brought to this kind of his own rationale that was rooted in a battle with and recovery from substance abuse, that mm-hmm. he came to believe that his brother was suffering from sex addiction. Right. Not- and, yeah, and, and that it wasn't. But, you know, he does. He also provided this letter that he had written to, in, to Harvey in 2015, two years before everything kind of right. blew into the public eye, right. and in which he's basically pleading with his brother uh, to get treatment for his, quote-unquote, misbehavior. Mm-hmm. And we reproduced it in the book in yeah, its entirety because we wanted readers yeah. to— that was an astonishing letter. And we wanted them to see for themselves. But they, you know? all, they all also have, you know, agendas of their own and things that benefit them. So to, to pull it down is not a natural instinct to get these people. Because the, like Erwin Ryder, he, he left his phone on a table for you. Oh, yeah. No, he acknowledges that he was giving me the memo. What happened? Uh, so he and I had been meeting late at night for uh, a couple of weeks. And he had mentioned this memo that sounded interesting, but we weren't sure what was really in it. He had quoted a couple of lines to me. And at this particular meeting, I was telling him more about what had happened with the actresses because mm-hmm. his knowledge was about— He didn't about, know that. Yeah, he knew His knowledge was about—there were two strands of Weinstein victims, right? There were the actresses, and then there were the former assistants, and mm-hmm. they were pretty separated from one another. And so I was telling him about— what we had learned about the actresses without using names. And um, he was pretty horrified. And I asked again, I asked him to read me from the memo. And then it was his decision. He said to me, 
I'm going to go to the little boy's room. And he handed me his phone and he left. He left me alone with his phone oh. open to the memo. And I thought, he is telling me without yeah. telling me to copy this memo. So mm-hmm. I put it in my lap. You know how sometimes at those mm-hmm. moments you're just like... <laughs> oh, I love a memo. You know that. <laughs> that's my, that's no, my I, no, I love the memo. But, you, but, you, but do you know those moments in life where you're like... You look at your cell phone and you're like, phone, don't give out on me right, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no weird black screens, please. Right, yeah. So I'm sitting there and I'm just screenshotting page after page of the memo. And I didn't stop to read it because mm-hmm. no, you I can't. wanted to work I'm very fast. Now. And when... Because you couldn't forward it to yourself, right? No, of no, course right. not. Yeah. So when he came back from the bathroom, the phone is sitting on his chair. Mm-hmm. And I say, thank you very much. And the conversation goes on. A good use of technology, finally. And then, and after we said goodbye, I went into the bathroom. This is at the restaurant, Little Mm -hmm. Park in Tribeca. Mm -hmm. And I immediately sent the memo to Megan and to Rebecca Corbett, our editor, because I was like, I don't... You don't want to lose it on your phone. You want the phone to drop in the toilet. Exactly. I don't want sole electronic possession for one more minute. Right, right. That's fascinating. So uh, I want to get to, in the next break, I want to talk about where it's going. But so you then rushed to get this into print because other people started working on it, Ronan Farrow and and others. What were the difficulties? Because then Harvey Weinstein comes in and starts to show up and and understand what's happening. He He had all kinds of private detectives in place and was aware of what was going on. Yeah, that's right. And he had become aware of our investigation um, earlier in the summer. In mm-hmm. fact, there was a moment when Lanny Davis... Uh, oh, he comes off. He's, <laughs> I know Lanny Davis. Lanny Davis, right. So he, Lanny Davis was among the lawyers. In mm-hmm. this case, he kind of doubles as a PR, kind of crisis PR Avenatti. person. He worked for who else? No, he, he worked for Michael Cohen. Mo- so Cohen, he was most right, recently Michael known Cohen. for his his representation of Michael Cohen. A lot of the people that we... The, there's people in this book who seem to be part of like this yep, never-ending Gloria rotating Allred, cast of Lisa characters. Bloom. We'll get to that. Yeah, appear in so many of the, the 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 major stories of the day. But so he had hired Lanny Davis. So Lanny Davis came in for a meeting with us at the New York Times uh, in the summer of 2017, in which we sort of it was our first engagement with Harvey. Which you side. have to start to do. Yeah, right, exactly. And that was a conversation that happened on background. But what a lot of what we did in this book was to bring onto the record a lot of these sort of on background sure. or off the record meetings. For right. example, the ones that which Jody had with Irwin, so that readers can really like get a. Understand of what yeah, you do. understand the like you know what happens behind the scenes where there's a lot of drama that plays out on the page, but there's so there was also in this case so much drama that happened it. behind the How scenes. Does right, exactly. So that was really and that was a that was an interesting meeting where Lanny came in and, and sort of dangled the prospect of 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 Hard, Harvey doing an interview with us, saying, mm-hmm. "Well, you know, I, I'm not sure if you know we're not 100 percent sure, but he may be willing to come meeting. in and talk about how yeah. he's you know engaged in bad behavior in the past, but he's having new recognition." about power imbalances and, yeah. you know, basically... That was basically, let's wipe the slate clean. Yeah, let's start wipe from the... There. Right, exactly. But that certainly did not play out. We said made. we'd be happy to listen to what Harvey has to say, but we're obviously going to continue our reporting. So Harvey knew what we were doing. He knew that we were mm-hmm. um, on his trail. And so it wasn't until later and actually in the course of reporting this book that we started to piece together all of the different uh, things that he put in place to try to stop our investigation and silence his accusers, including... You talk about private investigators, mm-hmm. the you know Black Cube uh, investigative firm, like of a whole nother order, made up of these former Israeli intelligence officials that were right. promised a three hundred thousand dollar bonus if they were able to bring our investigation to a halt. Right, you know? which is always ridiculous. I always find that ridiculous. But one of the things that happened was they were Lisa Bloom was hired by Harvey Weinstein, um, and 
wrote a memo that is just an astonishing memo for a a lawyer to write, but especially a woman who is known for defending victims. And that memo predates our Daughter investigation. Of Gloria, right? Yeah. Gloria, so right, so you've got these two famous feminist attorneys who are both involved mm-hmm. in different ways with this situation. And Lisa Bloom was hired by Harvey Weinstein in December 2016. And we know exactly what she was hired for because Megan obtained what's essentially her audition memo for the job, and it's this roadmap for how she's going to um, combat Barry Rose McGowan's mm-hmm. allegation, which Weinstein is clearly very worried about, mm-hmm. um, and she refers to the roses of the world, right. and it's incredibly explicit. I mean, she's basically saying in— Here's how we spud someone. Here's, here's how. how I'm going to— Make her seem crazy. Here's how I'm going to manipulate on her behalf. Here's how I'm going to smear her. And it's especially shocking because this is someone with a very loud public reputation for defending women. And Mm. she's saying, I'm going to deploy. That's your asset. Your asset is that I'm a big women's rights advocate, and I'm going to deploy that on your behalf. Right. And she she ended up in the final hours. I mean, we've we've now learned sort of from these records that we've obtained the work that she was doing for Weinstein behind the scenes for so many months. Both this memo, we also obtained her billing records in which she's sort of spelling out everything she got paid for. But we also were able to see her at work in the final weeks of our investigation, especially those final two days, she flew from California to New York to be by Weinstein's side. And there was a moment the day before our story was published where Weinstein basically barged into the New York Times mm-hmm. uh, with Lisa Bloom and some other figures, including Linda Fairstein, a former sort of you had them all there. Fan. All right, we're going to talk about that when we get back. That was my favorite scene. Then I want to talk about the last scene, which you you bring in um, uh, Christine uh, Christina Blasey Ford uh, from the Kavanaugh hearings. So I thought that was an astonishing choice in this book, and that was great. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this with Jody Cantor and Megan Tui, the co-authors of She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story that Helped Ignite a Movement. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built-for-business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability no matter what stage you're in. Intel vPro is here to help. Intel vPro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below the OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. 
whether the team is in office or working from home. Security is the name of the game. The Intel V Pro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel V Pro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. We're here with Jody Cantor and Megan Tui of the New York Times. We're talking about their book called She Said. By the way, the book looks fantastic. The, the red and the loud, it's so, it's loud in a really fascinating way because it's, it's, it, it'll, it'll do really well on the shelves, I think. So he finally gets to the Times. He shows up at that desk there in that beautiful uh, building that you guys have. Were you expecting this or it was, was it close to it was, go time for it, you guys? It was the day before publication and we had... Um, uh, you had we, gotten Ashley Judd to speak on the record, correct? Ashley Judd was on the record right. at that point, and we had been going back and forth between, you know, our, sort of Jody and I and our and our editors and our lawyer had been uh, were sort of a couple days into some intense uh, back and forth with. His Harvey lawyers. and his lawyers, right. and you know, including Charles Harder, who sued Gawker out of existence. You know, he was he on was by Harvey Peter Thiel on behalf of Peter Thiel. He was by Harvey's side, threatening to God, sue us. Uh, so yeah, there was, but there was this. A lot of that contact had taken place by phone, and then the day before Harvey, we got a call from Lanny Davis saying uh, Harvey's on his way to the New York Times, and we were like, "What? Excuse me? You know, we didn't. Re- he, he's mm-hmm. got some information he wants to share with you right. off the record," and we had. From the get-go, Dean Bacay, the editor of the Times, had said, "You are not talking to this guy off the record. It's all on the record, right. and because he'll just play games and try to mm-hmm. do underhanded tactics if you yeah. allow him to go." So we kind of had this choice of what are we going to do. And because he was already on on his way, you know, we just said, "Okay, like let's." I, I was kind of like, "Well, let's see what this guy got." You know, let's see what what he has. His and, story, yeah. and I had interviewed him a couple weeks before for a separate story, looking at some of his questionable financial activities. And so I was happy to square off against him in person again. Mm-hmm. And so he came in. So he barged into the New York Times. Uh, Lisa Bloom was by his side. Linda Fairstein, who was Very a sort of former controversial around the uh, around the the Central Park Five. That's right. She had been a prosecutor, sort of sex crimes prosecutor here in New York. There was another defense attorney, Elkin Abramovich, who was who was also there. So he comes into the Times. And kind of, and and I lead him to a conference room, and I say, "You've got 15 minutes. That's it." And he pulls out these folders in which he's got photos and other information that he's going to use to try to smear his accusers and try to halt the Ashley story. Judd, and, the, okay. and it was just, you know, of course, like you know, when he's pulling out background information on Ashley Judd and Ambra, the woman who had gone to the police in mm-hmm. 2015. I think without knowing that Jody and I, as part of the due diligence and getting a story to the finish line, had already done our own background checks on all right. these people and had gathered any of the records or information that he thought might he that he might be able to use against them. So it was really something that was much more illuminating about him, about him and the tactics and also about, you know, the role that Lisa Bloom had chosen to play. She mm-hmm. she would later sort of change tactics on the day of publication and say, issue a statement in which she said she had just sort of signed up to help him, you know, to counsel him and help him see the error of his ways. And, you know, in this private meeting, which was another thing that we were able to bring on the record in this book, uh, you know, it was clear that she was playing a much darker role. Oh, no, role. she was jumping out of the filthy boat. She was rowing. Um, so when you when that happened, how did you feel about that when he showed up? Because a lot of journalism now is done by email and text and stuff like that. So physical so, encounters are very different. So we had had a couple of encounters with him 
all later in the reporting process, mm-hmm. all starting in September. So basically in the in the last month of countdown. And it was it was fascinating because we I'm sure you felt this way on stories. Sometimes when you're reporting on somebody you don't have a lot of contact with initially, Mm -hmm. you're hearing about them through sources, Mm -hmm. recollections. So at that point, I had spent a lot of time listening to stories about Harvey Weinstein, both these terrifying stories about what had happened in the hotel rooms and also just talking to his former employees, reading things about him. And so when we started dealing with him in person or on the phone— Because remember, for a long time, we refused to talk to him. Dean Bacay had laid down a marker and said, you are not talking to him off the record because that's going to give him the chance to lie with impunity. Mm -hmm. So wait, we will speak to him on our terms when we're ready, when we have all of the information. So once we did finally start doing that, it was like this living illustration of this character we had begun to study. And he was so many things. He was grandiose. He was menacing. He was flattering. He was ridiculous. He was charming. He was pathetic. He was not factual in his, Mm -hmm. in his statements. He was insistent. He... He's a bully. He tried to bully us. He tried to mansplain us Mm -hmm. in a really epic way, even in some of the crucial conversations, like minutes before the publication of the story, mm-hmm. he was lecturing us about, about journalism. journalism. Yeah. Exactly. Don't you lo- I just had that yesterday. Someone who was not a journalist was lecturing about <laughs> Okay. Whatever. So you, you were going to publish this. What did you think the reaction would be when it— would it be as it, it really did set off everything, even though O'Reilly had happened, even though Cosby was happening, and Ailes, I think, had happened by then. The Times had done Ailes. This one, for some reason, just took off. And you, do you think it's because of the act? Because you had Ashley Judd on the record, and then in, in the ensuing week, you had a story with someone else, Gwyneth Paltrow, the rest. You know, well, I think that, Thurman, I li- guess, listen, about. I think I think that there was no doubt that because these, first of all, we did not expect that. I mean, we, Jody and I, a couple nights before our story was published, we finally took a break and said, okay, it was about one o'clock in the morning and we shared a cab back from midtown Manhattan to Brooklyn where we both live. And it was a rare moment where we just kind of paused and looked at each other and said for, you know, anybody who's done investigative reporting of any kind can probably recognize this feeling in the the final hour where you stop and say, is anybody going to read this story? (laughs) You've been so immersed in it. You can't sort of see the forest through the trees. And you've been so obsessed with just trying to get the, the facts and get your findings and get them published that you actually aren't even thinking about what the reaction's going to be. I think, you know, and we've pondered that question as we were working on this book. You know, why was it that this story did uh, help sort of bring about this uh, social shift in the past couple of years. And I think that, you know, when it comes to the actresses like Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow and other sort of prominent women who went on the record, um, I think that that did play a role. I do think that that showed that nobody was immune from mm-hmm. this type of sexual harassment. And um, and it, that did sort of help inspire people to come forward. But we also realized that it was, I think that in, in some of the other elements that we really reported out over the last two years was that this story was also kind of an excellent ray into abuse of power, mm-hmm. period. And that you know, so many other uh, elements of complicity and enablement came to the surface in the course of this story and became visible. And they, you know, th- there had obviously been um, elements of that in some of the other previous stories. But I think it really, uh, people were able to walk away saying this doesn't, this, this is actually a story that even goes beyond sexual harassment. Right. 
Right. And the pervasiveness of it. I think that's what was interesting because, like, tech has a whole bunch of them. And we had written about the Ellen Powell thing, which was a very—it's a different story, but it's the same sort of—it was about power the whole time. And one of the things that I found interesting is then you shifted and started to talk to Christine uh, uh, Blasey Ford. Why did you guys include her in this? I was like, oh, look look who shows up in this book. What was the reasoning behind it? We felt we had to do justice to the complexity— of me too, mm-hmm. because we had this experience. We we all lived through this. This mm-hmm. wasn't unique to Megan and I. The Weinstein story and a lot of the stories that came afterwards had such power and such force, and it felt like there was just this opening and like this seismic cultural shift, and and like the old rules on sex and power were really being blown away, and things that had been tolerated for a long time were not going to be tolerated anymore. But as the months went on, the controversy only grew. And there was this sort of feeling of mounting unfairness on both sides. Mm -hmm. This was before anybody knew anything about Christine Blasey Ford, even in, say, the spring of 2018. There was this feeling that both the accusers and the accused thought the system was broken, that we we didn't have the right tools. In our reporting, what we've basically seen is that there are three big questions about Me Too that are totally unresolved. One is, what's the scope of behaviors that's under scrutiny here? Is this just about really severe allegations of assault and rape? Right, or are, we, range. are we talking about bad dates? Are we ta- what kind of workplace behaviors are we talking about? Are we talking about bra snapping in school hallways, et cetera, et cetera? Second question, what are the tools we use for evaluating these complaints? How do we find the truth? How do we get to the bottom of what happened? Number three, what should the penalties be? What does accountability look like? All three of those questions are very controversial, mm-hmm. and that they tend to get very mixed up with each other as well. If you look at, say, the Al Franken case, it's like all of those questions have have just combined in a way that only creates more controversy yeah, and, and, and confusion. Also confusion, which is interesting. I just had someone very prominent say to me, can't we all just let Charlie Rose back in? I'm like, no, I'll tell you when. Like, it was weird. It was the weirdest conversation. So this we, is, this so, is the host who had... Another series of problems with interns. Exactly. So we knew we couldn't tackle all of that. But Mm -hmm. then when we saw, we had sort of an early private view into the Christine Blasey Ford story. And as we watched it emerge, we thought, this is a story that captures the complexity of what this has become, and we need to understand and it better. And you had interviewed, right? Is that correct, Megan? That's right. In in December, uh, two months after the hearing, I right. flew out to California and had the first interview in with Palo her Alto, in right? Palo Alto. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So, and at the time, she was, you know, she showed up for the the breakfast meeting with like her baseball hat pulled down. She was still living in hiding because mm-hmm. of death threats. She had not been able to move back into her family home, mm-hmm. and so it was clear that this the the sort of re- personal repercussions of, of of, of testifying uh, and coming forward, we're going to just continue for months, if not years, to come. And and when you when you brought them all together, that was fascinating. You brought Christine Blasey Ford with Gwyneth Paltrow. With you had a whole bunch of people there, and 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 uh, the the woman who I'm blanking on her name, the the, the, the who Rowena. Had, Rowena. Uh, you brought them all together. What was the thinking? I I thought it was fantastic, but it was a really interesting conversation that all of them had. Yeah, the idea was. 
like right now, as we said here, we're coming up on the third anniversary of the release of the Access Hollywood tape, Mm -hmm. the second anniversary of the Breaking the Weinstein story, the first anniversary of the Kavanaugh hearings. So all of us, all of us together collectively have lived through this sort of extraordinary period in Mm -hmm. the life of American women in all of our lives. And to bring the book to a close, we wanted to come back to the women who had helped trigger some of these changes. It was a very diverse group. Kim Lawson, a McDonald's worker who fought sexual harassment at the company, was there. Rachel Crooks, who came forward about Trump mm-hmm. in 2016, was there. But their stories had a common element, which is that each of them had told a very private, personal story on the public stage, except for one woman, Rowena, who had not come forward yet. And they had seen really outsized impact. Mm -hmm. Their story, for good or for bad, had meant more to other people than anybody in the room had ever dreamed. So we wanted to come back to them and say, what do you make of everything that happened? And also, uh, you know, what can you say now about the experience of coming forward? Right. And they'd also suffered. That was, you know, in some way, that was sort of a through line for a lot of this. Right. We knew what the public impact had been, and we really wanted to understand what the private implications had been for these women in terms of stepping forward. And so it was really mixed. Uh, There was somebody like Rachel Crooks, who was one of the first women to go on the record with allegations against Trump. And when I worked with her on those stories in 2016, you know, she was, you know, when I talked to her on the phone, her voice I found to be a little shaky. She's a receptionist, right? She'd been a receptionist in in Trump Tower. And when he had sort of forcibly, as she tells it, forcibly kissed her Mm -hmm. the first time they met outside an elevator. And uh, she... uh, so when she, she when she first came forward in 2016, she was sort of she was really shaky. She did not anticipate coming under such harsh attack. Yes, some people celebrated her, but other people, yeah. you know, even people in her own family had not support you know to this day support Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she was, but she had really undergone a pretty substantial transformation since then. She was coming off. She had actually recently run for state That's office right, in she Ohio. Did. She had run mm-hmm. for public office. Uh, mm-hmm. She had sort of been able to come out of the bunker that she had remained in for months and decided to actually use her public profile in an attempt to uh, get involved in the democratic process. And so there were people like her, Zelda Perkins, who was another person who was part of the Weinstein investigation, has gone on, has basically taken up a public campaign against these secret settlements in the UK. So there were people who had been really galvanized by their experience into activism, but there were other people who were still suffering from the kind of, that, for example, Christine Blasey Ford was talking about how much she had been struggling with reading things, the comment sections online. She, you know, yeah. where people were sort of saying f- false things about her. So that was also an interesting— I hope Gwyneth Baldwin told her not to do that. So that was— She's, She gets the most Well, it was, it was an interesting moment. I mean, there were the questions that we were asking mm-hmm. of these women in this group interview, but it was also interesting to see how they interacted with each other. So when Christine was talking about how difficult—some of, some of her real struggles with reading mm-hmm. stuff on the Internet, you can be sure that Gwyneth Paltrow and yeah. Ashley Judd sw- yeah. swept in and said, oh, no, you know, know. like if, if an alcoholic can stay away from a drink every day, you can stay right. away from the comment sections online. And so it was. There were there were there were similarities, and there were also experiences. So, and somebody like Ashley Judd, there really wasn't pain. I mean, there was. You know, she had been. You know, this is somebody who had been committed to gender equality for many years, and this was kind of just one of many yeah. steps but she's there, taken. There are prices like um, who's going to testify against Harvey Weinstein was just allowed. Um, that tremendous Annabella act, Annabella Shura. I want to finish up two things. I want to finish this up. Where are we now with the Harvey Weinstein? Where 
what's happening? Because it seems like that trial is sort of a mess. You know, the police didn't do such a good job. Okay, so the trial's coming up in January of 2020, and we don't want to make any predictions about whether or not he's going to be convicted because both the prosecution and the defense have been through a lot of convulsions. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Weinstein's team has changed lawyers several times. He claims to have really solid evidence that these relationships were consensual. Uh, On the other hand, with the prosecutors, the prosecutor's case has changed in a couple of different ways. And it seemed to weaken and then strengthen at various different points. And also, one of the central victims who, uh, an alleged rape victim, has been totally anonymous. So mm-hmm. we, Megan and I have not spoken to her. Our impression is that uh, she has not spoken to journalists generally. Her identity is not known to the public. And so there's a lot we don't know about how this is going to play out. So we don't know what's going to happen to him. So, so when you think about the overall thing, do you think it's a forward thing? Because if he gets off, you know, these people are starting to try to return. A lot of the people that were caught up in the Me Too things are attempting, like the Mark Halpern thing just happened. Where do where do you put it? Because, you know, I look at covering tech stuff, and we've been pretty tough on Facebook. Its stock has never been at more of an all-time high. Like, you know, some of the things, people are listening to it, but it's a really interesting, it's not that we're trying to get Facebook stock down, but we want people to think about costs and things. So, do you think it's changed anything? Well, I, th- I think that it's important for people to put this trial in the context of a variety of things that are happening in the the, the broader Weinstein story. I mean, first of all, this, this is a criminal case that's based on sort of three victims. Um, there's going to be some other victims who can serve as victim witnesses, which is right. significant. That that was really significant in the, the yeah, Cosby really trial. But, um, but, you know, th- a lot of what we have documented um, in the course of our reporting were allegations of sexual harassment mm-hmm. against Weinstein, things that would you know, things that would never amount to criminal charges. Uh, a lot of the criminal activity that has been alleged fell outside of the statute of limitations right. here here in New York and elsewhere. So this is a this is a very narrow slice of the Weinstein story, and I think it would be a mistake for anybody to think that it's going to be the final say on him and uh, his innocence or guilt. And it also is taking place sort of besides these civil cases that are playing out in court in which victims are trying to yes. seek financial kind of damages from him. And we still aren't sure how those are going to play out. But one of the reasons we wanted to write the book is that these cases are going to come and go. And we really wanted to kind of provide a lasting historical record of, of what we but, learned. But overall, Judy, I mean, look, pres- President Trump is President Trump. It, you know, these things go on. People continue to succeed. Do you feel like this has had a, an important reaction or do you feel, how do you feel at the end of it? Or there's no end to well, it. I was going to say, Kara, I do not think we're at the end. Yeah. I think the confusing thing is that everything's changed and nothing's changed. Yeah. If you look well, at— I'm thinking Anita Hill. Like, you, I thought Anita Hill would fix it. It didn't, really. No, but if you look at Anita, Hill's, did, yeah. Anita Hill's legacy is that she is the person who introduced the concept of sexual it, harassment absolutely. to workplace, workplaces across the country. I think on the one hand, if you look at the change that's occurred, it really has been seismic— the display of mass accountability starting in the fall of 2017, the fact that many corporations really are thinking about this in a new way, taking it far more seriously. The legacy of the Weinstein Company is that if you don't protect your employees, it can destroy your company. Mm -hmm. If you look at a company like McDonald's, it's the Mm -hmm. second largest employer in the country, they're actually beginning to take a much closer 
look at their sexual harassment policies. They've put some significant changes into place. I don't know if it's going to go far enough, but to see a company that employs that many millions of people trying really feels like something new. On the other hand, as we know, the basic laws and structures and systems have barely budged at all. There have been a couple of adjustments that are important at the state level. But what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago in terms of, you know, what is this country's fundamental system for preventing and dealing with these problems? That hasn't changed. Right. And there is a, there's also a backlash to it, like a backlash to the front lash, essentially, that it's a, that, oh, I'm tired of this. They're, you know, they're, that that wasn't that. And what can I do in the workplace? I've heard from so many VCs, now I can't talk to women. I literally want to hit them with a stick. Like, I'm I, thinking you know, about that several times. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, is that... Is, is that backlash or is it overreaction? Uh, you know, I think it's a lot of people who've said some dicey things in the workplace that really don't rise to the level but feel nervous about it and like, what did I do kind of stuff. And I think I get that. Like like I said, just, just the stuff at MIT recently with Jeffrey Epstein, some people are more, you know, in some cases it's – it's question you don't know it's confusing and in other cases it's quite serious it's quite serious well, so but i think that's another reason as we were working you know as we were continuing our reporting and as me too took off and became more confusing and more complicated you know we really wanted to kind of cut through the confusion and some of the emotional reactions that people are having and mm-hmm. plunge everybody back into the facts right which was really important so now let me finish up what are you two going to do what is your what is your next thing what is what are you, you going to continue to write about this topic well if we could tell you we wouldn't be investigative reporters. <laughs> but no, we are staying this on this topic st- area. We are staying on this topic. And by the way, we are always eager for tips if anybody wants to contact us. But I think our basic philosophy at this point is you can't address a problem you can't see. And our job is to try to help people see the problem. Right. Absolutely. What about you? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we have pointed out is that the the day that we broke the Weinstein story, our email inboxes and phone calls oh, were sure. flooded. That's with, the best part. Yeah. At, you know, with with women and other victims who wanted to tell their stories and with tips, and that's happening every single day. Well, once you feel you're not alone, it suddenly becomes easier to to talk. But I think the whole thing is every single thing I've ever looked into is because people think they're the only one and feel vulnerable, which I think is what you guys brought out a lot. And getting those people to talk on the record was an astonishing achievement. Um, and I think it's, I know how difficult that is to get people to do that, but it makes a big difference. I think Ashley, that one scene of you, mm-hmm. Ashley Judd deciding to go on the record, which was important, was really quite a fat. It must have been like, thank you kind of stuff. We'll see where it goes. Anyway, this is an amazing book. It's getting a very good reviews, ladies. I'm just telling you, it's, it's getting fantastic reviews. Um, and it's a great book. Um, it's called She Said by Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement. Obviously, that's the Harvey Weinstein story, but so much more in lots of ways. Thank you, Jody and Megan, for coming on the show. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Jody, uh, where can people find you online? Well, they can go to shesaidthebook.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can come to Twitter. They can come to Instagram. All right. And Megan? Yeah, same. I'm not on, I'm not really on Instagram. But you're but both on Twitter. We're on Twitter, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm Mega Tui, actually. I'm, yeah, that's uh, very <laughs> clever. And you're at Jody Cantor. Just Jody Cantor. All right. Well, well, I want to come back because there's a lot of these issues, you know, as it's interesting what's going on in tech in terms of hate speech and other things. And it, it all often centers around women. 
um, a lot of the, the abuses that are going on. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.